0: welcome to the fundamental health podcast i'm your host dr paul saladino this podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness in this podcast i will share with you everything i have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible thanks for joining me on this journey What is up, you guys? Hope you are all doing awesome. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the podcast. I am super excited about this one. I am also super excited that we are one week closer to the release of my book, the second edition of my book, The Carnivore Code. Check out thecarnivorecodebook.com. This book, I hope, it's my labor of love. It is my baby. It is a work of a great amount of energy that got into it, and I hope that it changes the mainstream paradigm. So check it out. thecarnivorecodebook.com, August the fourth release for the second edition. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on Am- not on Amazon. If you've read the book, leave me a review on Amazon. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. I would appreciate it so much. It helps us reach so many more people. This week on the podcast, Rob Wolf, Diana Rogers, the authors of Sacred Cow, which I think is another super important book for this point in 2020. We cannot ignore the issues that these authors have gone to great lengths to explore in this book. And as you will know, they are both already amazing people. Rob Wolf, Rob Wolf is a 2 times New York Times best selling author or New York Times and Wall Street Journal for The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. And Diana Rogers is the creator of Sustainable Dish. She is really the Um, driving force behind the Sacred Cow movie and a lot of these ideas. I think that when she and Rob came together, they've had this vision for really five to six years and it is so cool finally seeing it come to fruition. This book is called Sacred Cow. And in this podcast, we will talk about so many of the lies, the misinformation that we have been fed, ha ha, no pun intended, regarding the environment. There are so many misconceptions here. And I did my best as always to really show a lot of science to back up the claims that we are making, to really set the record straight about the ruminants, cows, buffalo, bison, sheep, goats, lambs' uh, influence on the environment and how they are not contributing to climate change. In fact, how they are doing the complete opposite as they enrich the soil with so many of the nutrients that we need. And this is what we get into in great detail in this podcast. As has been the case recently. If you are interested in watching the video, you can find this on YouTube as well, in which many of the studies will be shown in a screen share, as will many of the graphics from this upcoming book. The Sacred Cow, or Sacred Cow is the name of the book, is out July the 14th. You can pre-order it at sacredcow.info. As Diana mentions in this podcast, if you pre-order the book now, as I thank you, you will get access to an early sneak preview Of their movie, Sacred Cow. And again, this is a central issue at this time in our history. We need humans to be able to eat this food. You all know that I am a huge fan of animal foods. Last week's podcast with Nina Teichholz was one of the most downloaded podcasts I've ever had. And we exonerated, we defended, we went to bat for saturated fat. And here we are again, yet another lie we've been told is that animals are destroying the environment. So we are digging into it in this podcast. I know you guys will enjoy it. And I think that uh, you will learn a lot from this one. I did my best to put in tons of good information. So thank you also to my sponsors this week. I always appreciate the good folks at Nutrisense, NutriSense Nutrisense.io. I am so excited about CGMs these days. You guys know that I wore a continuous glucose monitor. I did a whole podcast about this I think it is the single best tool for changing behavior. My dad is going to wear one. Dad, if you're listening to this, I'm excited to see your results. I hope that it helps change people's behavior when they see this real-time feedback. And as you guys saw in the CGM episode, there is so much that we can learn from this with what we are doing in our daily lives, how the food is causing us to react. What is our fasting blood sugar? What's our overnight blood sugar? How is your postprandial, postprandial glucose response? What is the area under the curve? You can learn all of this. And more. And like I said, it can really influence behavior. So check out Nutrisense.io. I am such an appreciative person with this. I have so much appreciation for this, that I'm actually now an investor in this company, and find it to be such a valuable tool for humans. And I think that CGMs will be a crux intervention for humans in the future, uh, in terms of changing health behaviors. I think if everyone had access to a CGM we would see so many behaviors change in a positive way so check out nutrisense.io um, i am also a fan of blue blocks you guys know about these these are the cool blue blocking glasses that you'll see on my instagram stories that i use at night they've got the jasper which is my favorite it's these really cool old school frames you can go to blueblocks.com b l u b l o x you can use the code carnivoremd for 15% off i wear these all the time all the time you guys If it's nighttime and I'm around lights, if I'm in the grocery store, if I'm in someone else's house and they've got the lights on, if I'm driving home at night, I just throw on my cool blue blocks and I'm really protective of my sleep. I have a good friend who says sleep is business and my God, my goodness, uh, my circadian rhythm is business and I wanna protect it as well as possible. The guys at Blue Blocks are doing a fantastic job to do the science behind this and they are amazing at protecting the eyes covering the spectra of light that is going to negatively affect the suprachiasmatic nucleus and the secretion of melatonin that is blue and green light, 400 to 550 nanometers. They've done the work. They're super geeky about this, which is the kind of blue blocking glasses you want. And these things are really high quality. Like I said, I love mine. I've had no problem with them. And I just want to get them for all my family now. And they have an amazing sleep mask as well, which is probably the best sleep mask I've seen on the market. So use the code CarnivoreMD at BlueBlocks to support These guys, Get yourself some cool blue blocking glasses and you can look like a hipster or a totally hip chick or dude and they can be clear or Elton John colored amber and nobody even knows you're wearing blue blocking glasses and yet you are doing something good for your circadian rhythm. I so also appreciate my friends at White Oak Pastures. These are really my family now. Uh, Jenny and Will Harris, everyone that works there uh, knows they have my unending gratitude They are this sixth generation regenerative farm making some of the best meat on the planet, doing things the real way, the right way, rotational grazing. This is what we talk about in this episode, you guys. The idea that regenerative agriculture is the answer. It is a way to enrich the soil. It is a way to protect the animals. And it is simply the answer for life on this planet, as it always has been when we raise animals in this ecosystem. In an ecosystem, when you hear about biodiversity, when you hear about soil microbes in this podcast, you'll actually hear a video that I took of Will Harris when I was at White Oak Chella last year in this podcast. It's on YouTube as well. And you can see the difference between the dirt of these different farms. It is remarkable. White Oak pastures are dirt farmers. They just happen to grow amazing animals on the dirt. And that leads to healthy food choices for us and a sustainable ecosystem for our generations after us. These people are doing such good work. I called them the other day and said, hey, what do you guys think about changing the feed for your chickens and pork to make them low-pufa, low polyunsaturated?" and they were so excited about it. So White Oak is now working on this. We are working on getting low-pufa chicken. Uh, Their pork is not fed soy right now, but we're working on making the pork feed even better. So stay tuned. White Oak, they're always listening to what we want. They're gonna get us the meats. That's the healthiest thing on the planet for us. Check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. Use the code CARNIVOREMD if it's your first time for 10% off your first order. Give them a call. Tell them how much you appreciate what they're doing. And White Oak Cella is October 9th through the 11th. So if you want to come to Bluffton, Georgia, give them a call. I'm going to be there. I hope my friend Ken Berry's going to be there. We're going to have more awesome folks there. We're just going to be hanging out. There's going to be talks. There's going to be axe throwing, horseback riding, barbecues, grilling just community among people who appreciate this type of farming. And you can see it firsthand. When you come to this farm, you will never again, um, really look at other farms in the same way after you've seen the grass and the cows and how much these people care about this type of agriculture. It's, uh, it's really a moving experience. It's spiritual. So hope to see you guys all there. So please check out Nutrisense.io, check out blueblocks.com, check out whiteoakpastures.com, Please check out my book, thecarnivorecodebook.com. Support my work. If you pre-order now, I'll give you access to a video recorded about how to eat a carnivore diet. It's a private video. Only people who pre-order are going to get it. It's 20 minutes long, and I'm going to do a private Q&A for anyone that pre-orders now. Tell your mom. Tell your sister. Tell your brother. Tell your grandma. The carnivore diet is going to change the world. I believe it. Listen after this episode for what is going on with me. I love you all. Rob and Diana, thank you so much for coming on my show. It's so good to have you guys here.
1: Uh, Good to see you, neighbor.
2: Yeah.
0: Let me change this one. Let's see. There we go. Well, let's do gallery view. All right. So I think that this podcast comes at such an incredible time in our history and such an important time in our history. There is not an issue right now that is more contentious than this one. And it's crazy because it seems to me that within the arguments around red meat and uh, meat consumption, it's becoming more and more clear that those arguments that, saying, that are saying that red meat is not good for you are, are becoming marginalized. And people are beginning to wake up that that's not so true. I did a podcast with Nina Teicholz last week. And in the beginning of this amazing book that you guys have just published, Sacred Cow, you go further to debunk all those arguments. And then after we've looked at those arguments, which we can touch on a little bit today, but what I really want to focus on is the next big thing, which is most of the ideas in the book, which is, but what about the environment? So thank you both for writing this book. And let's just dig into this because I think that so much of what we see on the internet, the mainstream media, the mainstream consciousness is just everyone knows that cows are killing the environment. So this is crazy. So why don't we start with um, some sort of placement of cows within an ecosystem? Do you guys want to talk about, there's an an analogy that you draw in the book to a, a planet called grassland. And let's just start from the beginning. Let's just build an ecosystem from the bottom up and help people understand what cows and grazing animals, ruminants do on this planet or a theoretical planet how they fit into a a life cycle and kind of build from there.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll let Rob, um, explain that. We came up with this idea together, I think like four years ago when we were, um, maybe at Polyface farm, I can't quite remember, but we were trying to think of like, how can we explain to people why biodiversity even matters in the first place and why you want as many different forms of life as possible. And so Rob like had this brainchild, um,
1: Yeah, uh, it's the only one I've ever had. So uh, (laughs) hopefully it's a a good one. And this speaks a little bit to the challenge that we have. We're basically fighting an asymmetrical war in in this scenario. Uh, The folks that are advocating this kind of vegan life way, this vegan centric model, it's all sound bites, elevator pitches, moral superiority. Meat causes cancer, meat destroys the environment you 're a, you're a horrible immorable per immoral person to eat meat and it 's kind of compelling. it kind of has some legs it it sounds really good there are there are uh, striking images that can kind of support all this stuff and then unpacking any one of those statements is a mini dissertation in ecology, thermodynamics, and all this stuff and so I really appreciate the interest that you've taken in this in addition to all your other work. And I know that the folks that follow you do a deep dive on this. But usually asymmetric warfare happens from a small group with relatively little resources. And they do really squirrely things to disrupt the dominant paradigm. It's exactly the opposite now. All of the money, all of the power, all of the influence is using asymmetric warfare tactics to try to bury this notion of regenerative agriculture. And so I, I just kind of want to throw that out there at, at the, the start. But we were we were at this conference, at, I believe at Polyface Farms, and we were just kind of almost looking around for like some extension cords to hang ourselves from the rafters because we were like, how are we ever going to unpack all this stuff? Like it is so complex. There's so much stuff going on. It, it, there's so many different different stories and everything. And all of them are important. You can't have just the health without the ethics and without the environment. Like you can't just make this a, a one-stop shop. It's a, a three-pronged approach that you have to get with this. And so... We were noodling and I had this idea about like, well, people just fundamentally don't understand the way a a basic ecosystem works. And so in the book, and I don't want to give away all of the goods in the book, but we make this case that out of the depths of space, somebody notices that a planet is hurtling towards us. And we think that uh, all of life on Earth is going to end, but it just happens that this, uh, this alternate planet Earth, it's identical in every way, except it has no life on it. It has oceans and lakes and rivers and streams and all that, but no life. And it just lands in the Lagrange three point, which is exactly opposite the earth in, you know, in orientation to the sun. So it's totally habitable. It's not that far away. And people are like, wow, this is awesome. We got a, we have a second chance. What are we going to do with that? And so some debate ensues and what we end up doing is sending a bunch of grass seed over there. Like that seems like the lowest input deal, um you know minimal risk uh, the part part of the planet gets gets uh, inundated with grass seed the grass grows then the grass dies and so people start asking some questions like well, what's going on with that well they need soil microbes and you know you need some some actual interaction with animals because that's actually part of the life cycle of grasses they have to pass through the digestive tract of ruminants to really function in some ways So then we send grass and cows and the grass grows and the cows grow for a while and then everything dies because the cows outstrip their carrying capacity and eat every damn thing that there is to eat. And so their population collapses and then the whole thing grinds to a halt again. We're left with another lifeless planet. So finally, we have grass and cows and wolves. And finally, we have some semblance of some equilibrium. The cows keep the grass in check while also fostering its ability to grow and do what it should do. The wolves keep the cow population in check. So this thing can work, but it's also incredibly precarious because if one little thing happens, if one virus one bacteria switches some genes and it becomes pathogenic to one of these three organisms that are on the planet, the whole thing collapses. So now we want to have multiple redundancies. We want all kinds of different organisms that can fill major niches and also sub niches within this story. So if something happens in one place, it doesn't catastrophically affect all of this. And you know, I'm, I'm stoked that you brought up grass world because uh, m- many people have said this really solidified this whole idea. And we honestly weren't sure if, you know, people were going to be like, okay, those guys are idiots. This this is dumb. But it, it's actually really resonated with people. And it, it's interesting because this argument for increased biodiversity, people might think that um, using grazing animals wouldn't feed into that But it's fascinating. The Audubon Society, which has had a pretty long-standing contentious relationship or or attitude towards animal husbandry, has wholesale adopted regenerative agriculture. Because I don't know what the backstory is. And Diana, this would be an interesting thing for us to explore. But I suspect that somebody somewhere got invited to go out to a ranch. And this ranch had been using regenerative agriculture. And lo and behold, the the bird species there had exploded because this is what we what we see when people do holistic management and regenerative agriculture. They think about everything there because if they can do things that enhance the bird species, then they're doing things that enhance both the grass and the cattle. It's beneficial for everything. And now the Audubon Society has really changed its position and it is very favorable to the notion of regenerative agriculture uh, outfits like the savory Institute and whatnot. And this really gives a real world uh, kind of bookend to the notion of grass world that we need increased biodiversity. And this increase in biodiversity is literally the, the canary in the coal mine. Like if we're seeing reduction in biodiversity then we have problems brewing. And the row crop centric planet of the vegans model is one that expunges life from the scene and, and reduces it to something that looks incredibly like grass world, which is a precarious thing. It's a stool balanced on two legs. It is not stable. It's very brittle. And we're seeing some of that uh, you know, come forth with this COVID-19 pandemic and our, our Food systems and the processing and, and the, you know, the economic infrastructure, but hopefully that's not too random of a, an unpacking of grass world.
0: No, I love it. That's amazing, and I think that this, like, it's all about the metric that we use. And I love that you guys are advancing this notion that the metric should really be biodiversity, or at least one of the most important ones. We're going to talk about a lot of metrics in this podcast: soil carbon, you know soil mycorrhizal networks. But I heard you say this on another podcast, Rob, the soil has a microbiome too. Most people listening to this will know that in your gut is a microbiome and in your mouth and your skin and everywhere on the human is a microbiome. We are biologically diverse as well. And it's not a foreign concept within mainstream medicine that as we lose biodiversity Mm -hmm. of our own microbiota in any of those ecological niches, which are indeed ecological, ecological niches, we tend to suffer the consequences. And this is mirrored almost exactly in an ecosystem of the world. And I think that too often, and as you're saying, these, unfortunately, uh, these stacked against us arguments from uh, plant-based advocates who are funded by major agribusiness and industrial uh, financial interests, the, the arguments get oversimplified oh, it's all about cows farting methane. That causes a greenhouse gas. The planet warms up. We all go up in a big inferno. It's like, wait a minute now. Hold your horses there. Hold up. Like, you know, Have you guys ever seen that podcast from Beyonce that's like, hold up? You know, it's yeah. like, anyway, it's kind of like that. She's like, hold up. This is way too much right now. And I love that that, that concept is like, this is way more complicated than anyone is thinking about it. We are talking about the level of microbial diversity in the soil. We are talking about mycorrhizal networks, these fungal and bacterial symbioses in the soil, and we're talking about that in connection with plant roots, bacteria, bugs, worms, beetles, plants, rabbits, voles, snakes, wolves, grass, There's a a whole
1: interesting piece to that that happens under the soil, which I, Diana, we were, I forget where I was. I was with you when I, I became aware of this, but we have this process of photosynthesis, which most people are at least passingly familiar with sunlight lands on the earth plants absorb the sunlight and use that to grow a major element of that growth is the root system that goes below the ground. And then there's this whole symbiotic economy that occurs between bacteria and fungi and the the root system. And what happens in that is amazing. The bacteria and fungi trade different roles in mining minerals out of the soil. And then Importing that into the plant. So much of the problems that we face within modern industrial agriculture, the need to apply different mineral bases and whatnot is not really necessary within a a biodynamic system. Because there are some areas like uh, Diana has mentioned, the area that you live in is fairly depleted in selenium, for example. Mm -hmm. So there are places where not everything is there. But most things are there, at least in some concentration. And Mm -hmm the way we can either mine it with a a machine and massive amounts of energy, or we can have that done in billions and trillions of micro-machines all over the planet, mining the, the nutrients that are necessary at the source, while also improving carbon capture within the soil, also improving water capture within the soil, and then doing all these external things like growing food for humans and other uh, other organisms and whatnot. So you start getting this really remarkable um, kind of uh, dovetailing of the systems together that improves the efficiency. And this is one of the – I'm a big fan of economics, a uh, uh, kind of an armchair – econ nerd, but one of the failings of economics is taking in the full externalities of whole systems. It's super easy to look at a little pie slice of something. And I know you, before we started recording, you, you pointed out like dozens of examples of this stuff where it's really easy to vilify something if you look at one little cross-section. But then when we take the whole picture, um, the the benefits that occur from this, this solar-driven biodynamic process it is just incredible. And it's the result of 4 billion years of evolution. Like it's really slick. It works very well. And that's not to say that humans haven't figured out some cool things with maybe potentially tweaking and fiddling that, but pulling fossil fuels out of the ground and doing intensive agriculture is a process that is at best a short term gain. We cannot come back a thousand years from now and have that system still functioning. And, uh, Uh, I've made the case that we will end up with a regenerative system eventually. The question, well, assuming humans are still here a thousand years from now, we will have a regenerative food system. Uh, The question is, do we strategically plan that and make that transition smooth and seamless and beautiful? Or do we have full civilizational collapse and then we put the pieces back together on the backside of that?
0: Yeah, the earth will win. Earth will win. There's and no we're, not question. Gonna,
1: we're not gonna kill the earth. The earth is gonna survive whether we're here or not. And that's exactly. in the hubris of like saving the planet.
0: Yeah. We're only gonna save our we're only gonna save ourselves, right? The yep. earth is gonna be just fine. You know, we're certainly not treating it respectfully or holistically, but we'll only kill ourselves. And I think that yep. this is sort of a Native American concept that we've we've lost, that we're just a strand on the web of life. And if we choose to disrupt the ecosystem enough, we'll just wipe ourselves out and the earth will yep. kind of laugh and go, well you had your chance and you messed up. So there you go. But do you guys know how long ruminants have been walking the earth? I should have looked up this this statistic or this Mm -hmm. number, but I would guess, you know, it's on the order of a hundred million years or more. And so I'm just thinking theoretically, we've sort of had grass world on this planet for a hundred million years. Like you said, you know, 4 billion years is the age of the earth, but we've had We've had grass world happening on this planet for over a hundred million years, whether it's a ruminant that's like a dinosaur, you know, or a dinosaur ruminant or something. You know, I read in your book that 40% of the earth's surface right now is grass type plants. Like we live on grass world and this ecosystem concept with biodiversity has been happening successfully for probably a hundred million years, give or take, or more. So it's not a question of if this works. (laughs) This works. Mm -hmm. And we just need to make sure we don't mess it up too badly. But I love this concept of like, we are part of an ecosystem. These animals have been around way longer than we have. And it's very short-sighted, as you point out, for these vegan or plant-based ideologies to point fingers at ruminants when like, hey, you guys doing monocrop agriculture, which pulls out sequestered carbon from the soil or fossil fuel based agriculture that is way more ecologically disruptive than ruminants that have been part of an ecologically biodiverse system for 100 million years this is crazy people don't realize this like you think cows just showed up like in 1950 like bison and ox and you know deer and elk i mean there were 250 million of these in the US in 1850 it's crazy
2: yeah, and there's a lot of people that are trying to advocate for, well, we just need more trees, you know, but um, you can't, grass, grasslands need to be grass. They don't want to be forests, and they need ruminants because they co-evolved with ruminant animals. Um, so actually, one of the big ideas from the book, the one that actually won us the contract um, to write this book with the publishers of the China Study... Um, oh my goodness. Yeah, which is yeah. cool. <laughs> uh, is the idea that most of our agricultural land is only suitable to grazing because it's either too rocky or too hilly or uh, the soil quality is too poor. So there's most, most of the land that, that we're using for food production is only suitable for ruminant animals. There's a lot of places in the world where... It just doesn't make sense to be plowing everything up. And as these folks from Impossible Burger are so um, focused on their carbon emissions, uh, what we really need to be looking at is entire ecosystem function, like we were mentioning before. But there's, as you said, so much money going into IP um, for Impossible Burger, and there's, you know, it's the new you know, colonization of Mars, right? Like it's, it's just like, it's this new hot thing. We're going to make a lot of money. We're going to control IP. We can control food systems. We can control governments and countries, you know, um, let's just get everyone dependent on impossible burger. Um, And, and it was really interesting because we were on this, um, hunting, the hunting collective podcast, not too long ago, and I listened to the one right before us, where they had a rep from Impossible Burger talking about how magical um, their product is because they can transform, you know, these monocrops. And he was dodging so many questions about like what the inputs were and the energy. And um, we'll be talking more about a life cycle analysis in a little bit, but um, just when you look at the energy that you need to transform, you know things that are grown on our limited crop land into these fake expensive products. Um, it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense.
0: It doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to share a couple of graphics. You guys are amazing at these from the book.
1: I, I deserve no credit for this. <laughs> Diana, uh, is, Diana is both an artist and a scientist. <laughs> I am barely the scientist. <laughs> so
0: not all land can be cropped. It's just a great graphic. You know, you state here more than 60% of the agricultural land globally is pasture and rangeland. land that is too rocky, steep, or arid to support cultivated agriculture. Yet this land can support cattle and protein upcycling, which is really what we're talking about here. Cattle, ruminant animals, eating grass, upcycling it, taking grass, converting it into protein that is edible by humans and very nutritious for humans. I want to share one more graphic that I think will be a jumping off point and really sort of is, is what Rob was talking about here. And this is, I think, the centerpiece for our conversation. So Rob, you were kind of talking about this photosynthesis, the fixation of carbon dioxide by grasses, by photosynthetic grasses and other plants into the soil. So you're taking this carbon molecule here as part of carbon dioxide. You are fixing it into the soil and there are all of these microbes, these little bugs and fungus here. And as you said, um, there are liquid carbon in and exudates and feeds the soil microbes. You had guys on this graphic, again, Diana's a wizard here, um, you know, is locking up this carbon in the the ground, which we're going to get into. Microbes in the soil are freeing up nutrients that are useful for the root systems of plants. There's a symbiosis here. But this is essentially the process of carbon sequestration, right? Plants expire oxygen. And then... You know, basically, this is the key point. New soil is built through soil microbe life cycles, root biomass, cow poop, and, and plant uh, you know plant litter, which is trodden by the cows. And that is a that is an ecosystem that has always been happening. That's how soil gets to be healthy. Then the plants are eaten by the cows. This same carbon atom is eaten by the cow in a carbohydrate. We'll talk about this part next and how we've all sort of been misled. But I also wanna highlight what Rob was talking about here. The fossil fuel equation is very different. This is not a cycle. (laughs) What, What you guys are so beautifully illustrating here is that this is a cycle. This is a carbon cycle. This is just one directional. These are fossil fuels in the earth, usually in petroleum or in the earth, and they're just in sort of staying there that are either unlocked and emitted into the atmosphere as we're burning fossil petroleum fuels or as this soil is tilled by monocrop, plant-based agriculture, liberating carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in that way. So I just, this is so important for people to appreciate. Let's move on. You guys, it okay if we move on to this part now. So the cow eats the carbon and this is where things get controversial, right? We know the cow poops, that's gotta be good for the earth. This is a natural fertilizer and then the cow is going to burp out some of this methane. So this is where everybody gets all bent out of shape. Cow burps are killing the environment, right?
1: Yeah, and this is one of these things that if you you have even a moment of of time spent noodling on ecology and again like you mentioned the the vast herds of of grazing animals, you know, pre-columbian era in the the Americas, Why was the planet not destroyed then? And and that's kind of a dismissal. Like, unfortunately, we have to kind of get in and and be more rigorous than that. But it really is important to characterize what's happening in that animal-centric model as a cycle. Methane is released. Methane gets exposed to UV radiation and is cleaved and gets transformed into carbon dioxide and water. That reenters the carbon and the, the hydrological cycle. And that's fairly stable over time. Life is fairly stable in that regard. So there's a, a given amount of of productivity. And you actually showed us a, a link from the FAO that was talking about how methane emissions have flatlined relative to the number of ruminant animals, which goes completely contrary to the the narrative that that folks are are putting forward. But what's what's really critical to to understand in that is if we if we assume if we immediately vilify all greenhouse gas emissions as equally bad, then we end up in a really dangerous place. And I'll, I'll share a little bit of a personal personal story with this. A person that was uh, very helpful with my first book. She ended up actually getting referenced and acknowledged in my first book. Uh, I had posted something about how it was discovered that shellfish produce enormous methane emissions, absolutely enormous methane emissions. And the the end of the article b- suggested that perhaps these shellfish should be expunged from the seafloor, that we should have less life to protect life at large. And it, again, if you really buy into this notion that like all greenhouse gas emissions are bad, then this is kind of a, a reasonable, you know, secondary, tertiary kind of thing. But if you are wrong about that, then you are making an absolutely fatal mistake. And she really took me to task on this thing. And I said, hey, I, I really feel like we need to have a more nuanced conversation around this because if we get this wrong, we're going to enact all manner of policy from from like the UN level down, that could be incredibly injurious, and we may not really ever recover from it. And she said that anybody that questions the current narrative of climate change, she has noticed is also usually a Holocaust denier. (laughs) Now, this is somebody I've known for years. We had a good enough relationship that she got acknowledged in my book, but this is the degree of like whatever. I don't even want to give it, you know, like a, a label, but the, the um, commitment to this idea that all greenhouse gas emissions are, are bad. And what we've seen since then is there, there was a piece it's, it's in Finnish. Was was that the Finland Uh, Norway
2: It was the green party in Sweden had proposed uh, that we should kill all the moose in Sweden because they emit methane.
1: And, And this is where we are. And so termites emit enormous amounts of methane, even peat bogs emit methane, but they net net sequester more carbon than they they release. And even in this story, if all of life sequestered all of the carbon and all the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, at some point it would all be gone and life would end. So this is another one of these things where there's a balance and life itself and the fact that we have a a planet that turns and it has a, a geological cycle where there's subduction zones and volcanoes emit things, that is the largely the reason why life functions and can function over you, you know enormous timescales. When the planet starts slowing down, when it doesn't turn as much, when there's not as much radioactive material in the core to keep things churning, life is going to find it more and more difficult to exist. And this gets really way out there in the weeds, but it's just critical to understand that this this greenhouse gas story is important, but it's important to really vet it out and be crystal clear about, you know, we're talking about this on the one side, you know, with with the basically life. And then we're talking about something entirely different with the, the really massive and rapid release of enormous amounts of both carbon dioxide and methane and some other uh, potential uh, greenhouse gases from the, you know, uh, technology, the industrial food system, transportation, and all those sectors.
0: Yeah, and I think this is where... Things get nuanced, and this is what's so cool about podcasting, right? You can never have this conversation on the evening news, which is the tragedy of where we are today, right? We've just begun to unpack this, and this is going to get more complex and more nuanced as we go further in this podcast. But we are just beginning to scratch the surface of environmental science, types of different greenhouse gases. It's more than methane. It's carbon dioxide. It's N2O. CH4, which is methane. There are all sorts of greenhouse gases. And as you're pointing out, Rob, without greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, none of us are here today because the surface of the planet is like zero degrees Fahrenheit or something. It's crazy. Like we don't have uh, a planet without greenhouse gases. So there is some level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that is necessary for life on this planet. And this is not climate denialism. This is not saying that we should all just, you know, large scale burn everything we want and, you know, just pollute as much as we want. This is just saying, Hey, let's take a deep breath and actually try and dip our toe into a very complex set of information around the, how the environment actually works. Cause a lot of us, I mean, I'm not an environmental scientist, but I, it, it's tied into what I do and mm-hmm. we all have to educate ourselves here. And, and so many of these arguments against cows are just not nuanced. As we said, they're just saying, cows methane greenhouse gas climate change it's like it's more complicated so I want to show this article that I this this page that I briefly uh, shared while Rob was talking uh, we'll put this link in the show notes um, this is a joint FAO IAEA program um, this so this is and we will again talk about the FAO later in this podcast when we talk about ways that the FAO has been misleading in terms of previous studies they have done but This is a a website that just says that since 1999, atmospheric methane concentrations have leveled off while the world population of ruminants has increased at an accelerating rate. You can see the two numbers here and we're saying, wait a minute, you're telling me that cows are contributing all the methane, but cows are going up and methane is going down. And so people can dig into this in more detail. This is just all the ruminant livestock in uh, in the world, and you can see they're all increasing. But the conclusion here is, it, from the FAO, is, is pretty clear. The link between atmospheric methane and ruminant population growth seems to have broken down. Uh, this occurs despite accelerated increases in ruminant numbers without an equivalent increase on global methane concentrations within the current time frame. And they say, you know, basically this challenges us to re-examine uh, the notion that cows are the single greatest contributor. I'm, I'm just saying that this is the, the, the messaging from vegan plant-based groups is cows are the reason. Cows are the single greatest contributor to climate change. That is, I'm not, this is not, I'm not making this up. That's actually been said. <laughs> and he's saying, it's just like, wait a minute, that's crazy. I love that you highlighted this, Rob. Peat bogs produce methane, termites produce methane, landfills produce methane, um, you know, moose in Sweden produce methane. This is crazy. This is part of an ecosystem. This is part of the carbon cycle. And so let's, we can go back to that other.
1: And, you know, doc, there was a little piece there, even on that, that paper that it said that the possible reduction is from improvements in efficiency, basically that it's since World War II, like the, the industrial food system. Um, It's also possible that the two things are not related at all which is funny that the, you know, the correlation causation deal, like they're so beholden to this notion that the uh, uh, emissions from life would be direct drivers of this process where there was no assessment of like, well, the transportation sector is expanded, you know, dramatically and the use of plastics and, you know, all of those are major vectors. And we kind of saw that within the the COVID shutdown. Um, and it's kind of hilarious in a way we saw carbon emissions plummet while transportation and flights and all this stuff were taken offline. The number of cows and ruminants didn't really change, but yet the, the total emissions really dropped and, and it was, uh, quite significant. And then the way that that got spun was that now during the age of COVID, livestock plays an even bigger role in the, the climate change story because transportation
2: because propo- was taken yeah, offline. Proportionally and, and there's like, less transportation. So then the livestock goes up and yeah, it's insane.
0: It's, um, it, yeah, it's truly crazy and it, it's very complex. And so I just want to highlight this one again, just to really drive this home for people. So the grass has carbon in carbohydrates. It's eaten by cows. Cows do burp methane humans do fart methane. Moose do belch methane. Like we produce methane. So do vegans. Vegans produce more of it. I'm just going to say like, let's just be honest. Rob was talking about this. Methane is converted to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere longer. But if you could trace a single carbon atom, you would see that it's just cycling and has been for a hundred million years because ruminants like this cow or an auroch, which is sort of the ancestral thing of a cow or a bison have been here for you know millions of years and this this cycle has been going on in a biodiverse ecosystem and this is to be contrasted with this unidirectional flow and i just i struggle to understand and i think that it's we've already touched on why this is really happening that industry doesn't want this story to be told they want this story to be told this is the problem eliminate cows don't look at how much we are getting from the actual you know, transportation and other emissions. So
2: Oh, there was one more thing on there. Can I just point out that, um, so water getting stored in the soil, so carbon attracts H2O. Right. um, And so that's just one other piece and it can only happen when there's lots of carbon in the soil to begin with. And so that can only happen when we have the soil covered and not constantly tilled up through industrial ag and good grazing techniques. And so water is a huge you know, cattle are blamed for, you know, 10 bathtubs full of water in order to, you know, make your quarter pound burger. Um, But they can actually increase um, how much water is held in the soil instead of what gets evaporated or run off like in corn or, um, you know, other types of
0: monocrop production. Super important point that was um, also shared with me by Will Harris, who in my mind is the closest thing on this earth to a saint, Um, you know, uh, at White Oak Pastures, I have a video of Will that I want to share in this podcast, contrasting the soils from his farm and the farm 25 feet away. And he says that as you increase the amount of carbon in the soil, it can sequester more carbon. It can sequester more water. It can hold more water. Mm-hmm. So that he's, I think he says for every 1% of carbon, you can hold another inch of rain. And so when you hold more water in the soil, you have less runoff and less erosion, which is the way soils are supposed to go. Um, I guess I can just, I'll show that clip from Will now and see if this works. Um, I I hope that everyone listening to this will appreciate Will's amazing Southern accent. This is basically the reason I moved to Texas, Rob, was that I just wanted to be around people who were cool like Will Harris and have an accent that is this amazing?
1: Too, too many Californians have moved here. There's not enough accent happening I know, now. I
0: know. <laughs> Let's see if we can get this. Uh, here's a couple of soil
2: samples. We'll take them literally 25 feet apart. This one was from my pastures that have been managed holistically for 25 years. This is from the neighbors, 25 feet apart. Nothing separating a fence. 25 years of holistic management versus degrading industrialized farm. This was sort of over 5% organic out This one is less than a half percent for gatting To give you a sense of what that means, one percent organic mouth, the home.
0: pretty happy that will got to join this podcast too. I'll put the whole video on YouTube and and Instagram, but that's such an important point. I mean, this really cannot be overstated that this, this like sequestering carbon in the soil, healthy ecosystems, a healthy soil microbiome is, is everything, right? Um, let's use this next slide as a jumping off point, uh, unless you guys have something else that you want to go to. But I think this, this is a a chart that, that you have in the book and that, that I, um, tried to recreate in my book as well. And and it kind of talks about what we were saying. And and I want to point out that this is from the EPA, um, the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Um, And I think this is from 2016 data thereabouts. And you can see that when we're actually comparing the methane emissions, uh, transportation, electricity generation, industry, commercial, residential, ag, crops, agricultural livestock. And then of the agricultural livestock, 2% are beef. Then there's fuels in U.S. territories. And if I'm not mistaken, this is um, these are of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So the point to be made here is that all livestock are only 3.9% of U.S. GHG, greenhouse gas emissions. And of that, about 2%. So why is this not the story that we're being told and how can this be so different than what we've been hearing so often, you guys?
1: I wish I had a good, (laughs) good answer. You know, it's, it's funny. There are these things that, I mean, we are in this like fake news world now. So people just kind of pull things from their nether region and it seems good. Like Diana has done all these debunkings of uh, broccoli is more protein dense than steak, you know, and it it it's just you just go to the USDA food database and plug this stuff in, and it's like, oh, okay, no, that's completely completely inaccurate, but it's it's interesting it, things Sound kind of compelling, and then they take on a life of their own there 's this this one meme that 's going around, mm-hmm. which we it would have played beautifully to our case had this been supportable but there 's this meme going around that there are sixty harvests left in the world because we 're losing our our topsoil and all this stuff. Diana looked and looked and looked, and the best it, that you could track down it was
2: It was a woman at it was a a woman from the United Nations um, from the FAO but she was just at a conference and she just said it like without any citation or proof or anything. She just like said it at a conference, and then it gets reported in Scientific American as if it's total fact with no reference. And, it,
1: and it's now cited in scientific Everywhere. papers. Everywhere. It's part of documentaries. And they all and cite
2: Scientific American, which just cites her saying something.
1: And and again, it would have been great. There is an expiration date on our, our topsoil. And it's because of industrial agriculture. All of that is true. But the, the untruth there is that nobody knows what that date is. And it's probably different depending on where the, the particular location is. But this is a pretty good example of something that just seemed really compelling, and and it it's kind of true because there's a an expiration date on this stuff, but it has become, you know, I, I bet Wiki, Wikipedia probably, and even though Wikipedia wants you to cite everything under the sun, like this is probably something that's just so accepted as as factual that it you know it just uh, flies in there, but. I don't have, Diana, do you have a good answer for how this stuff emerges? um,
2: So what we did um, when we outlined the book is actually take every single um, vilification of cattle, nutritionally, environmentally, ethically, and basically just explained away, you know? Um, And we were trying to... put our I mean we we list our bias in the front. We're both omnivores and we believe, you know, that humans are omnivores and we eat meat. Um but we tried to disprove ourselves on every level. Um and there was one case in the nutrition section where we weren't able to find evidence that supported our our bias. Um and we we wrote it because that's what the literature supports and So, you know, grass-fed beef isn't is not uh, you know, according to what's out there, significantly more nutrient dense uh to humans than feedlot finished beef. It's just there's just not a significant difference. Um, and you know, we even said we know this is gonna make everyone really mad. This doesn't, you know, support our case very well, but we also have to go with the reported literature and it's just not supporting that hypothesis so, so there's, right.
1: there's great ethical considerations for pastured meat there's wonderful environmental reasons but the, the funny thing is people get so bent out of shape around this but what the reality is is that meat is nutritious mm-hmm. period full stop time you know and and I, I don't remember if we were recording yet or or we talked about this before but uh uh conventional cattle spend 85 to 90% of their life on grass. And so this is one that like, we're not advocating for all of like the CAFO system, but something that, you know, we're in this culture right now where everybody wants to burn every damn thing to the ground. And, and on the one hand, I kind of, I kind of get it. But on the other hand, that might be kind of short sighted. We might regret doing that. And the, the way that beef is raised today, it would only take a shove To turn the whole thing into a regenerative system, to decentralize a bunch of the production, to open up many, many more uh, abattoirs and and, uh, processing facilities, to completely decentralize and make non brittle the system. But this really enrages the like uber elite. Um, grass-fed or nothing, hoity-toity folks that that uh, live in New York and San Francisco, and and they're basically like, if you don't eat grass-fed meat, you you should eat no meat at all. And it's like, okay, that's great. What about the family of four that lives in a a, a project or something? And the difference in their children's success is going to be majorly impacted by whether or not they have access to animal products. Do 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 they? just forego that and they eat tofu and all these other things that we know are going to be suboptimal for them. So, you know, it, it's funny because we have this kind of fake news narrative, but then we ha- also have this um, almost poisonous uh, kind of worldview that comes from the, the, the meat elitists that it, you know, that there's only one way to do this. And, and, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you want to expand on that, Diane. Well,
2: also, I mean, um, there I've been to plenty of ranches that um, that do amazing work they're sequestering carbon they're um, you know improving the land and everything. but then economically for them, it makes more sense to um, sell the cattle to a feedlot just to be finished and and move on because their land just can't support the the finishing they're much better at just that stocker level um, but they can still do amazing work. so if we vilify typical cattle ranchers and say that they're no good and you can only be hundred percent grass-fed and that's the only way you're a good guy we have so much potential with all these other ranchers that are grazing right now they can improve the carrying capacity so they can they can uh raise more cattle on their land and they can sequester carbon they can improve ecosystem function and still you know if it works for them finish on a feedlot i you know if the if the 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 food stocks are you know produced well. Um, you know there, there are better ways to produce that. There are also cattle are upcycling crop residues that would emit greenhouse gases if they weren't run through a cow and, and turned into protein anyway so that's where we, um, we get really nuanced about stuff, and everyone starts to hate us because we're like, well, um, as nutrition experts as public health advocates we want people eating meat, um, and not bagels and Twinkies and all those things. Right. Um, and then, on the environmental side, there's not only one right way. There's, there's many levels of, of much better. Um, and yeah, so it just gets really complicated.
0: It does get really complicated and we can unpack a lot of that. And one of the most important things that I want to unpack with you guys in this podcast is the scalability of, mm-hmm. Regenerative agriculture, the scalability of grass feeding and grass finishing at a larger scale. Um, I I agree with you guys completely that in the studies that I've seen, there's there's not a huge difference in terms of the actual nutrition content of grass-fed beef versus grain-fed beef. One of the things I I kind of came across or I wondered about in my book was well, if the cattle are eating grains that have been sprayed with atrazine or glyphosate or um, you know mold, then then you know the fat of those animals could be a little different. So it might not so much be with the nutrients that are in there, but you know the cleanliness and the toxins could be better. Yep. So I think we can make that case. And then I've been talking a lot about linoleic acid recently, and though ruminants are pretty darn good at avoiding packing their fat with linoleic acid when they're fed grains, it's pretty clear that grass-fed cattle have less linoleic acid in their fat, which is probably a good thing for humans because I suspect that excess linoleic acid in, in animal fat um, is contributing to the total pool of linoleic acid and polyunsaturated fatty acids in humans, and that could be a major driver for metal- metabolic dysfunction but and I could not agree with you guys more that um, getting lost in you know the the grass fed versus grain fed debate for a family of four you know in the inner city is silly, and including meat in their diet will be the single greatest contributor to the um, intellectual success, the, the the physical success, the mental success of their children. And it's much better to get any meat than no meat. And then we can say, all right, how do we make that? That follows to the next question, which I really want to unpack, which is how do we make all meat, you know, an ecosystems type of meat that that is better. Um, before we get into that, I, I do want to unpack this one piece, which I've come across multiple times and you guys illustrate in the book, which is, why we don't hear about that graphic with the EPA numbers as much as we should. And this gets into the idea of life cycle analyses. Again, this is one of your excellent graphics. So most people, when they hear about the amount of greenhouse gases quote, which is methane that cows are producing, they're being quoted this based on FAO numbers, usually from a 2003 or 2006 study, which was subsequently, uh, rescinded and then revised because they did not do proper life cycle analyses of the emissions of cows. And so this is really the key to understand that in when someone, usually a plant-based advocate, says that livestock is contributing as much greenhouse gas emissions to the environment as transportation, they are quoting a false sort of misleading report from the FAO that compared a life cycle emission of a cow to a direct emission from transportation. Am I getting, you guys, am I kind of yeah, talking about and this so correctly?
2: Organizations like Meatless Mondays will say livestock contributes more greenhouse gases than the entire transportation sector. Like they they really, really like just go overboard on that. And the difference, um, according to that graphic you had was, um, first of all, 0.5%, but also um you what that was looking at was um so there is no life cycle assessment looking at worldwide uh transportation exactly. um, that would be intense um and but there are life cycle assessments on cattle so they took the life cycle assessments on cattle and then they compared it to just tailpipe emissions on transportation so exactly. in order to do this accurately you would need to look at just cow farts and, and burps which are 5% um, versus the 14% from transportation. So that's that's a proper way that you would um, compare
0: those two things apples and to apples. Exactly. I love it. And, no and it's not
2: even apples to apples because it's
0: biogenic it's part of versus a cycle. Yep. Exactly, yeah, right? So- But if we're actually talking just about gas for gas like if we say it's all tailpipe, right? Like if it's yeah. cow farts quote burps whatever yeah. versus tailpipe from transportation we get a very different story where and this is global right it's
2: it's global, and that means like so when we saw the chart from the u s which was like two percent, um, we have a lot more relative to other countries. we have a lot more transportation happening here compared to a place like India where there's just like way more cows than there are cars, and you know so that it skews things a little bit, so um worldwide it's five percent, but in the u s it's two percent
0: and in other countries, my sense is that the management of the cattle is not as refined as it is here and that parasites and less less refined procedures to manage the cattle may create you know, more emissions because the cows are not as healthy in other countries and that there's something about the way that we manage the cows here, they're in better ecosystems, they can be a little healthier in general. But So I'll just share this again and, and summarize it for people. When you see someone <laughs> saying that, cows emit as much as transportation, ask them the source because they are almost certainly quoting an FAO analysis that is based on comparing a life cycle analysis of ruminants to a direct emissions from transportation. As Diana says, the undeniable point is that no one has done a life cycle emissions on transportation. And I don't think it will ever be done because this will be staggeringly different. If you just look at direct emissions transportation is three times that of livestock. And as Diana pointed out, it's not even apples to apples because it's a carbon cycle of ruminants that have been on the planet for a hundred million years versus new carbon going into the atmosphere with transportation that is being mm-hmm. liberated from the ground and is not being cycled. So this is what is so insidious and misleading in my opinion and why we're not being told the right statistics. And it's just, this is what gets me so frustrated is that we're just really being lied to. And I mean, Rob kind of said this in the beginning, and it's like, that's why we all do what we do is because we are being lied to. And all of this rhetoric, you know, is just crazy. Like if you look at the EPA data, it's right there. Cows are less than 2% of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions relative to other sources. And, and I should
2: I- mention really quick, because some, uh, the like Instagram, kills me. And, um, every time I put that up, they're like, yeah, but cattle emit methane and that's 10 times worse than, than carbon dioxide. So just to put that to bed is it's, um, it's put into a CO2 equivalence. So it's, it's not that way. And even there's a new report out of Oxford saying that, um, those conversions are even misleading and, um, methane is actually not as potent as they used to think. So.
0: There's this warming potential of the gases when right. the gas goes into the atmosphere. How much of the infrared radiation from the sun is trapped? Uh, you know, and and people are saying, oh, methane is more. But as you're saying, these calculations in that graphic and in in the other graphics are based on CO2 equivalent So we're normalizing yeah. all this. We're not comparing different gases, and so these these arguments don't really hold water. It's just like it just this kills me the, on
2: Instagram. That's
0: exactly, it it's Instagram arguments, and yet it gets repeated over and over. And I mean. Yeah. Jonathan Safran Foer recently published something in the New York Times saying the end of meat. And in these articles, and we'll look at one at the end of this podcast, people just sort of say like it's common knowledge. Everyone knows that cattle are contributing. And it's like, what are you actually basing that on? None of this really adds up when you look at it. So I think that we, we've touched on this. Let's go back to this really important, interesting point, which is regenerative agriculture. We, we touched on the idea, look, if you can't get regenerative meat, don't let that dissuade you. Eat meat for your family, eat meat for your kids. That's the best thing. But we all know, as Rob you know, eloquently said, ethically and in many other ways, creating a cow that can have a life cycle that remains on grass from start to finish is, is the better thing for a lot of reasons. We, we talked about this idea of a life cycle analysis in um, in, in that slide, looking at the life cycle analysis of, of cattle. But um, can you guys explain to the listener like what a real life cycle analysis means, and how a life cycle analysis for a regenerative animal might be different or looks different to us in terms of the actual carbon equivalents they're emitting? You know, we've talked about the fact we've already unpacked all this. Methane is coming from a lot of sources, but let's just assume cow. I mean, cows are producing methane, but let's actually get an accurate perspective of different amounts of methane depending on how cows are produced. And there seems to be a real difference with regenerative agriculture.
1: Yeah. Like 10 years ago, literally like 10 years ago, when Diana and I were talking about these things, I didn't know that there was a term life cycle analysis. So I was calling it a full thermodynamic accounting, all the inputs, all the outputs. And then about five years ago, I learned about this term, life cycle analysis. And they're really expensive. They're incredibly complex to do. I think you already shared one of these from Qantas and this is a great example to be able to, to illustrate what goes on here, but they, they do the best job they can to look at every single factor, like how much tractor work goes into moving something around and harvesting and whatnot. And this company or this, uh, I guess it's a company, uh, Qantas did a life cycle analysis on the beyond burger and, and looked at the full thermodynamic inputs and outputs and looked at what its carbon footprint effectively was and its energy footprint and then it looked at the white oak pastures uh, uh meat production and what was interesting is the the Beyond Burger was a net positive carbon releaser the white oak pasture was a net carbon sink or remover from the in, in environment and the numbers were identical and and it was cool because it's the same company it was a different Time point, so like the likelihood of some. I haven't even seen the vegans; they just kind of ignore this, and they don't even say that Qantas was like unethical in this process. But uh, they, the case has been made that if you wanted to offset the consumption of one Beyond Burger, you would need to eat one White Oak Pasture Burger to be at one hundred percent carbon neutral, and this is something that I, I wanted to back up just a little bit with regards to the, the the direct pipeline of fossil fuels going into the atmosphere. Technically, that does become part of the carbon cycle. If we allow enough life to do the job it 's supposed to do, it will sequester all that stuff. If we make a horrible decision and create Planet of the vegans and have row crops as far as the eye can see then we have zero capacity to offset the emissions from the transportation sector. And this is, again, where it's really important to put on our big kid pants and, and, and do the work to vet this stuff out. If we're wrong, then that's, that's fine. But this can't be team sports where we're going to win at all costs because we're not gonna win. The species is going to to cease to exist, or we're gonna have some really massive problems. So even though I know there are folks that are incredibly passionate and and well-meaning, it's really important to get in and, and vet this stuff out, both on our our suppositions, but then also what they're being told by the the media and outlets like The Guardian and and places like that.
0: Yeah, it's it's striking how different these narratives are. I'll screen share. So this is from the Qantas Life Cycle Analysis for White Oak Pastures. We'll put Mm -hmm. a link to this in the show notes. Um, And this is something that's been done by Qantas. I'm sure it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, The net breakdown was you can see they balance out the enteric emissions from the cow, the manure emissions And they can look at, um, you know, these are in kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions per kilogram of fresh meat. You can say, hey, look, when you do this regenerative type of agriculture, which we can talk about, you can put carbon into the soil. Like we started with the podcast, that diagram. And you can offset this here. And then there are other activities at the farm that produce some. The net total emissions of white oak pasture's beef is negative. This is exactly what Rob is talking about, that if you remove animals from the planet, you are not going to have any way to sequester carbon back into the soil like has been happening forever and ever. Um, you can see here the value uh, for comparison is taken from Beyond Meats, LCA. And so the same which company- Which they did
2: before. That, which they did, the, exactly. the same company. Yeah.
0: yeah, the same company did both of these. And isn't Qantas owned by General Mills?
2: Uh, no, General Mills funded the study. Okay, um,
1: I think yeah. Qantas is just like a giant uh, consulting firm that does mm-hmm. life cycle analysis. Okay,
0: but General yeah. Mills funded the study, so I mean, you can spin that any way you want. You know, I'm sure the vegans will spin it in their favor. But it's like, hey, General Mills makes grain. You know, do they want? This? I mean, who would know? They're they're. It's in their best interest maybe to make Beyond Meat look better and White Oak Pastures look better. And so you can see this is a really It's a presentation, so it's not a scientific paper uh, in this PowerPoint that I'm sharing, but this is exactly what Rob is saying. Like, life cycle assessment is all of these pieces of the life. And in the case of a cow, it's all of the things that are happening. You can see this complex diagram, you know, at every level of the processing of the emissions, how much is going in, how much is coming out. And the results are striking, and you can see this is pretty much the same uh, graphic they had before there, the enteric emissions, the manure emissions, um, and you can see that the uh, you know the there's a lot of carbon sequestration in the soil because it's working well. Here's the beef breakdown, and they are actually comparing it to conventional beef. And this is sort of what's really cool about regenerative agriculture. Again, this is not to say that we're that we're trying to demonize all conventional beef, just trying to compare it to other life cycle analyses that have been done. And they note them here at the bottom of conventional beef saying, you know, when you raise a cow on pasture from start to finish, it does better from a greenhouse gas emissions perspective. So we need to be careful what we're talking about here. You know, is it, um, is it that, uh, that the conventional beef just, we're not seeing this much soil carbon sequestration there, or they're not measuring it. Kind of like, and that goes back to the video that I showed of Will Harris. You can see the difference in those two soils and that's the proof is in the quote pudding, right? When a cow poops on the ground and pees on the ground and the fertilizer from that cow and the the, the compost from that cow, at White Oak Pastures, they compost every part of the cow that is not used. This is like bison dying on the plains. When you put all of that back into the soil, the soil is richer. The plants are healthier and you can sequester more carbon. If you're having a conventional beef farm, then the soil is probably going to look like that light soil in the video with Will. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be 0.5% carbon. And if you listen carefully to Will in that video, he said his is 5% carbon. There's a great graphic of all this stuff on White Oak Pastures website, which I'll share, um, that really illustrates this very well. This is their graphic showing essentially the same thing from the the Qantas analysis. But you'll see here, these are water-stable aggregation in the soil. It's going way up over 20 years of regenerative grazing. This is what Diana was talking about earlier. When you have more carbon, you have more water-stable aggregation. You can see the microbial activity. This is what Rob was talking about. This is the microbiome of the soil, you know, the microbial respiration going up after, you know, 20 years, it's, it's this one of these, uh, you know, parabolic curves. It seems to kind of approach the asymptote at about 10 years, but it's still increasing. And this is incredible. The number of years regeneratively grazed, the soil organic matter goes up to 5% at 20 years. Well, Harris has been in this for 20 years and more. And then here's another measure of soil carbon. But when there is so much carbon in the soil, it looks like chocolate. It's the dark chocolate versus like the light milk chocolate or not even really, you know, it's like the light brown versus super dark brown. That is how the carbon is being sequestered. That is kind of the magic of regenerative agriculture is that if we care for the soil, if we create grassland with a microbiome in the soil, then it all works, right? We get biodiversity in the soil, we get more carbon pulled in, and that's what's so cool. And if we could make this, what if we could do all agriculture like this, then then the argument really completely falls apart. We've already unpacked the fact that the argument is kind of based on a faulty premise in the first place. But even if we say, all right, cows are producing some methane, how can we offset that methane? This is the way we do it, which leads to what I think is probably the crux of the podcast, or one of the things that I was most excited to talk to you guys about, and I love that you unpack this in such great detail in the book because I've not seen this discussion in anywhere, another form, which is how do we scale this? And can we scale this? Rob's already kind of given us the hint saying that most cattle, almost all cattle spend 85% of their life, 90% of their life on grass. So let's just unpack this and then I'll share some of the, the numbers that I pulled from your book. but. What do you guys think? Because I think when all of us say regenerative agriculture is ecosystems-based agriculture, the retort, which we should consider, is you can't scale it. You couldn't make enough beef this way. What do you think?
2: Well, um, first of all, we know that uh, farmers who use these regenerative techniques can produce more food. Um, exactly. So, and, uh, although not that calorie production is an issue. It's 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 nutrient production that's the issue Mm -hmm. but anyway um, you can stack enterprises so you can run you know the chickens right after the the cattle on the same land so it's like one acre is only used for cattle Um, But even putting that aside, if you have healthier soil, you'll have healthier grasses and you can actually just graze more animals on that land. And so um, in the film, we actually visit with Joel Salton, who's uh, another producer, very similar to Will Harris. um, And he's uh, at five times the county average as far as his production there. Um, and so in the film, he's like, what if the neighbor did that? What if the other neighbor did that? What if the guy down the street did that? And, um, so what you can do in Virginia or Georgia is very different than what you can do in Nevada as far as, um you know, carrying capacity. And so a lot of scientists don't like that because they just want like the formula that can be just like replicated exactly. Um, and that's just not, it needs to be adaptive to the environment. Um, and it, it might not look even like cattle. Uh, like I was telling Rob, um, I have, I I know a bunch of guys from Peru that like Guinea pig is their thing, you know, and, and that just works for them. And they don't have a lot of refrigeration. And so like culturally, um, You know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense for them to be grazing large animals that they can't even store. So, um, you know, it might be more goats and camels in in drier areas. Uh, But here in the US, um, if you got rid of uh, the corn that is grown specifically for cattle, um, and also in some of those uh, charts where they're showing such high numbers for cattle, they're actually including ethanol as grown for cattle but the cattle are just really eating the stalks. They're not, it's not, but that gets lumped into cattle feed um, Mm -hmm. sometimes. So that's uh, just kind of unfair in methodology. Um, Anyhow, if we uh, utilized all the undergrazed areas, all the non-grazed areas, we were talking earlier about the CRP program. So uh, the government has all these tracts of land that are just not being used right now for, grazing. Um, so if we were to work in, uh, these fallow fields, um, in between crop production with grazing, um, that's actually a win for everybody because it, you know, puts nutrients back into the soil. So we went through, you know, at a very conservative, you know, increase of 30% Um, so not five times, but just 30% increase in productivity. And then we look at all the land that's underutilized in the U S we have way more than enough land to grass finish all the cattle in the U S.
0: And that to me is so striking. Anything you want to add to that, Rob? Just,
1: it's hard for folks to kind of wrap their, their heads around this, but like Diana mentioned Nevada, which is a, a, a very arid region. Um, arguably, food production there is going to be more constrained than somewhere that's that's quite uh, wet like Virginia. But something that folks don't realize is the Great Basin, like this whole tract of land going out towards uh, uh, Utah and from, from Reno to Utah down to uh, Las Vegas, that used to be grassland. And it wasn't that long ago that there were three or four species of camel and uh, enormous elk herds. And a a little bit further back, there were still elephants in these areas. And, um, it's, uh, it's a fascinating thought that if uh, in the film, Diana has an example in the Chihuahuan desert, where one of the ranchers there has rehabilitated this just, blasted moonscape and it's a a verdant grassland now they have to be very careful with it this this stuff that alan savory talks about like a brittle environment versus a non-brittle environment non-brittle being more similar to to virginia you've got a lot more latitude with what you do but not only are there massively underutilized tracts of land that we would look at and say yeah that is grazing land there is massive amount of desertified areas that could be rehabilitated into productive food centers. And they would, lo- they would sequester carbon and they would hold more water and that would reestablish aquifers. And this is, again, where we start getting multiplications in the efficiency of doing this stuff right. And so, again, I don't want folks to just believe what we're saying out of hand. Like I would really encourage them to get in and kick the tires on this stuff and try to vet it out. But if even part of what we're suggesting here is true, that there's this potential to re, you know, integrate all of this effectively lost land and get all of these, these kind of economies of scale going on, there could be a really massive boon here. And one of the greatest um, challenges that we're facing just uh, from a workforce perspective is that artificial intelligence is, is poised to replace a lot of what people do. And it, bad for you, doc. But like doctoring and lawyering is looking like two of the first things that are going to like like potentially be algorithmically driven and and uh, you know handed off to AI. But what ranchers and regenerative farmers do is morning, noon, and night problem solving. And problem solving is creativity, and creativity is going to be the last place that AI makes a, a an inroad into the world, and it may never really displace that. And so there's the potential for millions of people to make very good livings, growing food for themselves, for their communities. And then the, the excess of that can be reintegrated into this amazing global distribution network that we have. And this is something that is democratized and it's decentralized. And this is in juxtaposition to the reality that currently there are nine companies that control something like 90, 95% of the global food production. There's four companies that control 80 or 95% of the meat production in the United States. And so, you know, topics of, of social justice and privilege and equality are really, really hot topics. And what we're suggesting is a system that nobody owns the intellectual property on our food. And this is like the stated goal of impossible meats is to own the intellectual property of our food system. And if, if folks think that that's a good idea and that, that, you know, that that doesn't bring us to even more dangerous places, I, I, we really are lost. Like there is no hope for us.
0: Yeah. The earth will be fine, but there's no hope for us. Again, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I love that you touched on that. and I, I want to circle back to that in a moment. Um, but that I've heard you say that on other podcasts as well. That is a scary fact. And I've even heard you say on other podcasts that these mega meat companies will buy time at these abattoirs, these slaughterhouses, to prevent smaller producers from actually getting in there. There is a mm-hmm. bigger thing happening here. And so decentralizing this and letting farmers do this is a big deal. I mean, we'd earlier talked about the fact like, look, just eat meat, you know, get the best meat you can, but there there are some things that the the mainstream meat production facilities should really be called to to point on here. And we should point out that they're, they're, you know, like companies like Tyson and these major factories, like they are actively working against smaller producers, grass-fed, grass-finished producers from getting in there to have their cattle slaughtered and harvested so that we can benefit from that food. So that's a really important point to make. But The first, I mean, I think this is, once we sort of illustrate this idea of regenerative agriculture, carbon sequestration, the next thing people say is you can't scale it. And it's like, wait a minute, you absolutely can scale it. Mm -hmm. Like we said, just to reiterate this, most of the cattle, 90% of the, I mean, I think almost every single cattle we're eating, if it's grain finished, it started 90% of its life on grass. We just, we never had to move it away. You know, like, and that's just a consumer-driven thing. I often say this on my social media, you vote with your dollars. And if people were demanding this type of meat or willing to support this, and understanding that the, the future generations, their future generations would benefit by them supporting these type of farmers, and the ecosystems would benefit by them supporting these type of farmers. And the fact that an ecosystem might actually still be around because they support this type of ecosystems, biodiversity type of farming with their dollars. If we could get people to do that, which is what I think is so cool about what you guys are doing now, then we'll see a change. But until that happens, it's going to be hard to convince people to pay more for their meat. But from a land perspective, you guys illustrate this very clearly in the book. So I want to show this, the Conservation Reserve Program. I was not aware of this before I read the book. This is just the USDA site. It actually exists. It's not a very exciting site, but it shows you that the U.S. government is paying farmers to let their land sit. (laughs) The U.S. government, and this is land, as I understand it, that has been monocropped. They're saying, hey, you are a plant farmer. You are monocropping this land. We realize as the U.S. government that if you monocrop that land forever, it's going to become completely worthless. So we're going to pay you to not grow crops on it. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of land like this. What did I find? I mean, some large amount of acreage in the Conservation Reserve Program, I don't have the number, but I think you guys have it in the book. I mean, there's millions of acres, millions of acres of land that are being, that our government is paying farmers to leave fallow because they've essentially pulled all the nutrients out by doing monocrop row agriculture. And you could reverse that. If you put animals on that land, that's the reverse process. So this is really the point that I am so excited about making with the help of you guys on this podcast is the opposite of monocrop agriculture is regenerative agriculture. Monocrop is pulling nutrients out of the soil, into the plants, and it just goes into a black hole. Regenerative is like you pull nutrients out into the plants, the cows eat it, it gets pooped back. You saw those two soils from from White Oak, from Will Harris. You get dark soil, you get carbon rich soil, you get nutrient rich soil, or you get really light soil. And so why are we paying farmers millions of dollars to take millions of acres of land and leave them fallow so that they can actually kind of rehabilitate. And this takes a long time. I did some research. It said that like it took 25 to 50 years for a plot of land that's been sort of depleted by monocrop to really start to reintegrate. You could do this. I mean, Will Harris has rehabilitated land in 20 years with farming and he's producing food while he's doing it. So that's what we need is instead of a conservation reserve program, we need a regenerative agriculture reserve program Okay, you farm this land as monocrop. Why don't why don't we subsidize you to put some cattle on it? You know? And then we have regenerative cattle and it's it, it's helping the land. I know you've been to Rome Ranch in Texas, right, Rob? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: both of us have. So
0: Rome is amazing. They're they're farming buffalo. And I went out there with Katie and Taylor, and they they did some, they said, look at that piece of land, as you know, a square foot of land in Texas. And this is land that's been monocropped and kind of depleted. And they're doing the same thing with their land. They're raising buffalo regeneratively. And you look at a piece of land in Texas, it doesn't look super fertile. There's maybe grass growing in like 20% of that or 10% of that square foot of land. And the point they made was the longer we do regenerative agriculture here, the more that square foot of land gets filled in by grass. And that increases the carrying capacity of that land and we can have more cattle. So regenerative works and all these levels and these arguments that it's not scalable don't are just ridiculous to me. I mean, conservation reserve land can be used and then the increased productivity of the land as you do regenerative agriculture. In the book, you guys quote um, a well-known scientist, Jim Howell, saying that regenerative land can increase stocking rates 50 to 100%. You could put twice as many cattle on a plot of land if there's more grass growing per square foot. That's great. And then you guys do the calculation in the book saying how much cattle, how much land is being used for corn that's being fed to the livestock. 30 to 40% of that corn is just, you know, is going to the livestock. Well, if we're not corn finishing animals, we don't even need that. We can take that land, put animals there. It, the, the calculations really work out pretty quickly. There's plenty of land to make enough beef for this country and probably other probably other countries because of this fallow land and these regenerative kind of uh, the way that it increases the productivity of the land. So this, it, it works at every level, which to me is just like, it's just such a no brainer and why it's so important to spread this message and combat all of these untruths. Like it's, it's absolutely increasing the quality of the soil. It's absolutely holding more rainwater. It's absolutely increasing the quality of the grass and the animals are healthier and it's absolutely scalable and it's sequestering carbon. Why would we not do this? I don't, I don't know. It doesn't make well, any you, sense
1: to me. Doc, you, you make a great point, And this is where it's just a, a constant trench warfare. Like before we started recording, we mentioned, uh, we talked about the, Recent Guardian piece: Why you should go animal free. 18 arguments for uh, eating meat debunked, and it's as if the the author just went through the book Sacred Cow and just picked every salient point that we made and, and tried to make a, a counterpoint. And he's not an uneducated guy. His name's uh, Damian Carrington. He's got a PhD in geology. He is is the staff like uh, environmental editor for the Guardian. Some of the challenging features of the article is that 90% of the links in there link back to his previous articles, and only a few of those articles actually reference scientific material. And then some of the stuff that he does link as far as scientific material, he makes the case that, well, we don't really, the the benefit of regenerative agriculture plateaus because Uh, It it doesn't take that long to get the soil carbon up to 5%. And that's where it pretty much maxes out. But then he completely ignores the fact that you can continue to build more soil. So there's these like lies, lies by omission. And it's really fascinating because I suspect this guy is well-intentioned. He's clearly well-educated. I don't think he's a, a dummy by any means. But it's really interesting that he would look at this problem only at the level of, well... Soil carbon plateaus out, so regenerative agriculture is worthless. And it's like, well, wait a second. Yes, it plateaus out, but we took it from 0.5% to 5%, which is a big win. And you can continue adding soil. Like, the soil can get deeper and, uh, yeah. But this is, again, this is the trench warfare that we're, we're fighting. We're like, we we launch a salvo over, and then there's another salvo back. And there's just, there's a lot more of them than us currently.
0: And, as you said, they have bigger funding James yeah. Cameron game changers if If anyone needs more convincing, just look at who's funding these things you know do you do you Do you think that uh, you know small town ranchers are telling the truth and have your best interest in mind, or do you think that Nestle and Monsanto and Bayer have your best interest in mind i'll leave it to you guys to decide but Um, I mean, what did you say before this podcast, Diana, the, this is just sort of an interesting point that the guardian apparently has just gotten a lot of money from, uh, plant-based interests.
2: Yeah. I can't remember the name of the organization off the top of my head. Um, but they have been paid by a, um, a vegan centric, um, organization to put out editorial that supports, um, the, the end of livestock agriculture. Wow. So that's, I mean, just right there with the guardian, that's a problem. I'll look up, uh, I'll try to figure out who that was and send that to you.
0: Yeah. That's just scary stuff. So one of the things that's awesome about books like sacred cow is that you guys can, can do like Rob says and kick the tires, (laughs) you know, you can read what these guys are saying and actually look at the studies they are referencing. One of the problems that I had and, um, you know, I had a, a fan ask me to debunk this article in this podcast and I think that we basically have gone through and addressed many of the points, if not systematically. Um, we've, we've really addressed many of these and certainly the book will give you the counterpoints. As Rob points out, there's a lot of oversights. he's not actually referencing a lot of science. I want to share a couple of studies just so I have them in the show notes for you guys and you can see these are from um, the uh, these are from Sacred Cow and they're in the actual, you know, bibliography, and so you can see these studies showing what we are talking about. This one is um, a research editorial, and it's The Role of Ruminants in Reducing Agriculture's Carbon Footprint in North America. Um, This is, again, this is some pretty exciting bedtime reading, you guys, but uh, it's, it's, it's important to know that the research is out there. If you want to become an educated climate scientist yourself, around this stuff because this is important. You know, there is peer-reviewed, scientifically done research to show this type of research works. It's, again, it's complicated. It's outside of the wheelhouse of many of us, but it's out there. This is a study done at Michigan State showing that soil carbon sequestration um, does happen (laughs) when you do regenerative agriculture. They looked at this, um, on life cycle greenhouse gas emissions in Midwestern USA beef finishing systems. They compared uh, regenerative type systems to conventional systems and substantiated many of the findings that were uh, put forth by Qantas in the life cycle analysis at White Oak. So there is research here. Again, it's lots of numbers and carbon dioxide equivalents, but it's there if you choose to dig into it. And then just another study that I think is super interesting um, highlighting something that we kind of talked on a little bit earlier um, that what we didn't go into in detail is that the, um, the fertilizers that are being used in the mainstream um, sort of conventional industries, especially for monocrop agriculture, have their own methane emissions that no one is really talking about. And this is a recent article that came out saying, hey, all these fertilizers that are being used are, are, are not that good for the environment. Um, and we cannot uh, ignore this. Using fake ammonia-based fertilizers to rehabilitate soil that has been repeatedly depleted through cycles of monocrop agriculture is not the answer. (laughs) The last one I'll show is an interesting study that actually looks at um, pre-European settlement levels of methane in the US, and this is striking, just showing that um, there, there were millions of these ruminants here, um, you know, a few hundred years ago. None, you know, notwithstanding uh, the consideration of, you know, how many ruminants there were millions of years ago, and that that hey, the methane levels were very similar with that amount of ruminants on the planet. So this goes back to something we said in the beginning, but more sort of uh, substantiation of what we're talking about here, because I do think it's important to show the science and not just reference other. Other articles that we've all written, so that people can get some actual data here. I think that if any of you listening to this are caught in arguments with people um, who are likely well-intentioned and um, you know are, are thinking about the environment, and they are saying, "Hey, cows contribute so much to um, climate change," I would just ask them, like, what what research do you have to show that? And watch how quickly their arguments wither away because um, so much of we, what we've presented here today. Will sort of be ammunition for all of you guys listening to really shore up your views, feel good about the choices you're making, educate yourself and kind of make your own decisions, but also understand the way that we are getting so wildly misled so frequently so um, is there anything that you guys want to want to share in closing we've covered so much like we said before the podcast we could do six of these um, any closing points you guys want to want to that we didn't touch on or any things that you guys were coming that you came across when you were writing the book, they were like, we really want to get this across as we wrap up here.
1: Well, it, just really quickly, I want it, because um, we are in kind of a asymmetric war. And so the folks that that uh, want to get in and support this, Diane has done an amazing job with the sacredcow.info website. Like there are so many beautiful infographics that are all scientifically referenced. And these things are very powerful for helping people convey uh, really complex and large amounts of data in a, a very concise fashion. So I would really encourage folks to, to check that out. And then as far as, you know, the, the, um, you know, some final thoughts, it was interesting. It, two things, you know, we have the the COVID pandemic that we're dealing with, and then we have this, this massive social unrest around concerns around equality and, and there's lots and lots of stuff to consider there, but we were maybe, a a week, two weeks into the pandemic. And, uh, Diana pinged me this, this graphic at the end of the book. That's basically like our, our doomsday prepper in, in one chapter, like, a uh, uh, consolidated notes. And it was just shocking. It was like, don't, don't carry any debt. If you can avoid it, have some food on hand, have some water on hand. You know, it was so interesting that, um, like we were, it was kind of prophetic given what happened with COVID and kind of the impacts on the food system and all these uh, unknown elements. But in this time where people are making so much uh, uh, conversation around ideas of equality and and social justice and whatnot, there is so much that is occurring in this this food system story that is is just the height of hubris and privilege. We have a largely white vegan, Eurocentric group of people that are suggesting that every other way of life on the planet that is animal inclusive is dirty, is broken, is damaging the environment. And some of the stuff that Diana uncovered, there are millions of women in, in Africa, as an example, that for cultural and legal reasons cannot own land as, as physical you know, ownership, but they can own livestock. And that is their sole means of supporting themselves, supporting their family. This is their their uh, social status designation. Uh, you know the ability to to own this livestock, but yet these people are by the this uh, you know vegan centric worldview, destroying the planet. And and these are people that don't have a CVS. That they can scroll down to and buy an iron supplement and a mixed B, you know, methylated B vitamin supplement and some DHA from algae. Um, And this is interesting. Some of the greatest pushback against the World Health Organization and some of the other outfits that are pushing this vegan centric model are coming out of developing countries. They're like, you are going to murder us you were going to destroy our traditional food systems and there is, you would make us completely dependent on the exports of the United States and Europe to, to feed ourselves. And that is a disastrous proposition.
0: Hmm. Yeah. True. Yeah, it truly is. And I, I mean, this is, maybe this is a great graphic to sort of show as we close here and then I'll get your thoughts, Diana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've talked to my friend, Peter Ballersted about this, and he's mm-hmm. reiterated the same point that eliminating meat would clearly do more harm than good. And this gets lost in so many of these plant-based arguments. Um, and this is what Rob is saying, that there's this incredible loss of nutrition. And the beginning of your book talks about this. My book, The Carnivore Code, talks about this. We are all, you know, super interested in eating organ meats but you just can't ignore, though many in the plant-based sphere would try to, you really can't ignore the fact that animal foods are incredibly nutritious. And if you remove those from the diet for what essentially would be a 2.6% reduction in greenhouse gases, which would probably almost certainly have zero zero effect on, on global climate change, you would create massive, pervasive, catastrophic nutritional uh, deficiencies across the population. So that that is the world that uh, Beyond Meat is hoping to have create. That is the world that uh, Bill Gates is trying to create. That is the world that, that Impossible Burger is trying to create. And that is a scary world because this is my family and your families and, and all of our children or future children and our generation's who who like Rob so so clearly says, like you can't just go to the grocery store and get a multivitamin. You can't just magically make up for all these things. And then there are so many multivitamin there are so many things in meat that that nobody creates a multivitamin for. Nobody creates a multivitamin of anserine and taurine and carnitine and creatine and peptides in meat that are valuable. You just you can't make meat in a vitamin. You can't you can't do this. And and the the clear trade-off here is is catastrophically bad. Um, and I love the work that you guys are doing to really emphasize like, Hey, this is the worst idea ever. Yeah. And
2: not only, Oh, go go ahead. ahead. Really
1: quickly. Diana did an amazing unpacking of this that, uh, and, and this isn't our opinion. This has come from like, ironically, world health organization type level that if we remove meat from the diet, we will become nutrient deficient. We will tend to overeat. And then we will have the health problems associated with overconsumption of empty calories and Diana did a, it we didn 't do a full life cycle analysis on it, but more of a broad brush strokes, but no one considers the massive carbon footprint of all of the the gizmos and gear that goes into managing type 2 diabetes dialysis tubes, insulin syringes, and on i mean it is mind boggling how much is produced there and there 's no discussion around that, but a this is where uh, talking to your crowd, Doc, is, is a little bit singing to the choir. Everybody here recognizes that uh, animal products are, are critical for health. This is still part of the fight that we fight out in the rest of the world. Like that Guardian piece, again, it, it attributes the bulk of our healthcare woes to the consumption of meat.
2: Right. And when we have 70% of Americans overweight or obese, the last thing we need is more calories and more carbs, which is what would happen in that scenario too. That was on the other side of that plate. Um, so I love that paper. Um, so I, I guess my only closing piece would be, um, if, if, uh, if, people are passionate about this. If they want some ammunition, we even have like a sort of choose your own adventure guide in the front of the book where we list all the most common questions and people can just flip directly to that answer. Meat causes cancer, boom, this page, you know, uh, meat destroys the environment, you know, or just tell me what I should eat. (laughs) We have that too. So, um, and one thing that we're doing um, for people that pre-order the book is we're actually giving them a sneak peek to the film. So, Uh, The film that I'm working on, which takes you to all these ranches, you can see it. It takes you to the Chihuahuan Desert where these guys only get 10 inches of rainfall, but it's like they're returning it to the Serengeti basically. Um, And so that's not in distribution yet, but we're going to do a special um, sneaky distribution to anyone who pre-orders the book um, and gives us a receipt uh, at sacredcow.info forward slash book. Um, by July 14th, when the book comes out. And then they will be, uh, they will have their time slot reserved in order to be uh, in first in line to see this, uh, to see the film.
0: That's so exciting. I can't wait to see it. And um, I think this is such an important thing to support in so many ways. I know firsthand how much work goes into writing a book. So thank you both for committing so many hours of your lives to this super valuable thing. And I think this is such a great point to close on that if you eliminate meat, what are you gonna substitute for it? You are are certainly going to have to substitute something that is inferior. And I just did a podcast with Nina Teicholz last week, like I said, and the story that we told there was when saturated fat got vilified, we substituted nutrient-poor carbohydrates and vegetable oils. And this is exactly what would happen again (laughs) here. It would happen all over again. Most people will know this, but I want to show the ingredients of um, Beyond Burger. The second ingredient or the third ingredient is expeller-pressed canola oil, okay? What is in an impossible burger? Sunflower oil. <laughs> if anyone has been watching any of my social media recently, you know that I am on a tirade against vegetable oils. If we eliminate meat, there is people are not going to eat more unprocessed vegetable foods. <laughs> They are going to eat more processed grains and they are going to eat more processed vegetable oils. This will be an absolute catastrophe for our health. And I mean, you know, Rob, in the first podcast we did, you you said, if you want to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. (laughs) You know, I think that ultimately the earth will be fine. What we're arguing for is the persistence of the human race. And if people care about this, I hope they will share this podcast widely and and really fight back against this insidious, misleading misinformation that is being promulgated so widely. Because what's at stake is not necessarily the health uh, of, of any of the three of us who are listening to this, because we are eating just fine. But it's the health of five generations of our ancestors from now, or two generations from our ancestors from now. After we are gone, what information will they be told about how to eat? You know, I saw something recently that was, you know, somebody was saying, I do the work I do so that my children and their children will not be influenced by the ideas of lesser men who are, you know, who are misled by a system or who are telling them lies. That's why we do this work, so that future generations have the opportunity to be healthy and are not misled by this crazy propaganda. So thank you both for doing this work. Um, the last question I always ask on this podcast is what the most radical thing you have each done Diana, what do you think? What is the most radical thing you have done recently? And this is like 80s radical, like, you know, what's the coolest, exciting thing you've done recently? Oh, man.
2: Rob knows the year I've had. So I just, I'm, I'm still year. standing yeah. and that's
0: radical. Uh, Maybe that's it, you know, just <laughs> getting through hard times. A lot of I'm, obstacles. I'm
1: not dead yet. Yeah. yeah, um, No breathing. Mine wasn't super recent. It was a couple of years ago, but I used to work for the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program. And so I would speak to the SEAL teams, the special boat teams and their families. And I would speak to the the SEALs and the boat team folks on one day and then speak to the families on the second day. And while I was speaking to the, the basically the wives of these service members, uh, several of the seals showed up at the facility and started like looking in the, the the window and motioning for me. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And so I walked over and I cracked the door open. I'm like, what's up with you guys? And they're like, do you want to go parachuting? I'm like, yes. When do I go? And they're like, as soon as possible. And so I went back and I'm like, okay, we have an hour left. I'm going to get this done in a half hour because your husbands want me to go parachuting with you. And so we drove out to the drop zone and they explained to me what we were going to do um, they said, when we get there, we'll have plenty of time to go over your gear and make sure you know what's going on. So we checked in and then we walked back out into the, the uh, parking lot and then they said, green team, you're good to go. And they're like, oh, that's us. So we run back in and we have to start putting gear on and like the guy held up a, a skydiving harness and I went to put it on like a coverall and he's like, no dude, that goes on the back. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't know, you know? And so we tumbled onto the, like the, the plane that picks you up. It, it literally, it, it comes down on the ground, it taxis, people jump off, people jump on, you go up and the guy harnessed himself to me and he was like, just don't stick your arms out and hang onto the door because I'll have to break one of your arms to get you out and that'll be embarrassing. And so I went skydiving with some Navy SEALs one day and lived to tell the tale.
0: That's freaking amazing. I've it never been cool. skydiving, but I really wanted to. Diana, you ever been skydiving?
2: There is no chance, like not even, I, no, no. Nope. It's <laughs> like right up there with all my top nose. Okay.
0: <laughs> all right, guys, tell me about one more time where they can find this, where they can <laughs> pre-order the book, get access to the sneak peek of the movie, all that yeah. stuff. Where is it?
2: Uh, okay. So sacredcow.info is the website that has, it's really just a clearinghouse for all this information too. We have tons of blog posts. We have all those infographics that you showed plus more shareable stuff. Um, and then we have a tab book which um you know talks about the book links to the book but also has the area where people can submit their receipt by July 14th. Perfect. Um, so that's the
0: most important thing. And the book comes out July the 14th but pre-order now you guys because that's super important and it really helps this movement and my goodness I hope I see this book in every airport in the United States very soon and all the bookstores and stuff. So thank you guys for coming on the show. Thanks for hanging out, and I can't wait to see you both in person soon. Thanks, Doc. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. All right, you radical people. Thank you to Rob and Diana. SacredCowIn.info to pre-order the book. This is the center of the discussion now. There are so many falsified articles out. This is the discussion we need to be having, and we need to be spreading this information about agriculture, about what is actually going on, about ecosystems, about biodiversity. And the book is amazing and it has a lot of information you will learn a ton. The conservation reserve system, how about that? We're paying farmers to leave their land after they completely destroy it with monocrop agriculture. Crazy stuff. Why are we doing this? I have no idea. We should be raising animals on it. So anyway, I'm in Austin, Tomorrow is my birthday. I'm recording this on Sunday, June 28th. The 29th of June is my birthday. If you're listening to this on Monday, June 29th, it's my birthday. If you're listening to this on June 30th, yesterday was my birthday. Um, But I went to a meetup today with some good carnivore folks in Austin. It was good to see some new faces, meet some people. I'm loving it here. Uh, It's a beautiful place right now. Just as I started recording this, we've got a thunderstorm. It is raining. Cats and dogs here in Austin outside, but I love it. It's green. We had a warm day, and I'm totally digging living in the south and connecting with the good people here. Miss the ocean a little bit, but getting out on lakes and rivers a lot. And I think that uh I'm here for the long haul. So, as always, uh my website, carnivoremd.com, you can subscribe to my newsletter. I send one out every Sunday, and I'm gonna send sending a lot more out. The book releases August the 4th. There will be an audio book which I recorded myself. We're fixing the link for the audiobook, so stay tuned for that. And uh, leave me a review for this podcast on iTunes. Leave me a review for the book on Amazon if you've already read it. Over 500 reviews for The Carnivore Code, Indie Edition, collector's item edition. Uh, and I'm, the second edition is just going to go even bigger because we're going to affect more lives. If your life has been benefited, if your life has been bettered, if your life is better after eating this type of diet... Tell people you know, because there's so much misinformation, and I think that there are few things more satisfying for me than working to correct the misinformation that is out there, or at least being a voice to the contrary. Did my best with coronavirus. Hope you guys found that valuable. Pretty much done talking about it. I know people are still saying it's spiking, but, you know, there's a lot more testing, the hospitalizations aren't rising, and uh, deaths are not spiking in the United States. So uh, this is a false alarm in my opinion. Do not let the media scare you. So silly. Anyway, love you all. Stay radical. Newsletter, carnivoremd.com, book, thecarnivorecodebook.com. Leave this podcast a review. Leave me a review on Amazon. Thank you so much. I will see you guys next week. Stay radical.